your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Quick introduction before we get started. This is the first part of a three-part interview I conducted with my colleague at the Ayn Rand Institute, our executive director, Yaron Brook. And the subject is finance and the financial industry. The financial industry is one of the main targets of attack in the crusade against economic inequality. And so I thought it would be helpful to really look inside it. What does this industry do? What does it contribute? What are some of the myths surrounding it? And why is it something that we should regard as moral and be troubled when we see it under attack? So with that, let's get started. So Yaron, for those who don't know, tell us a bit about your background, how you got interested in finance, and why you think it's important to speak out in defense of the financial industry today. Sure. So I got interested in finance while getting my MBA at the University of Texas in Austin. This is the late uh, 1980s. Uh, and I just enjoyed the finance classes. It seemed that uh, in finance you actually were learning something. A lot of the other stuff struck me was kind of wishy-washy and not very scientific. And as, a, as a, an engineer in my undergraduate, I was immediately gravitated towards the financial classes. And, and it also gave me an understanding of both business and, and economics, so certain economic concepts. I really not thought much about economics beyond what I'd read in Ayn Rand. Uh, and, and finance really gave me a certain way in which to understand the world, which was, I think, different than... Than I had before, different even than the field of economics provides, particularly when it's taught by by Keynesians or by Marxists. Um, I then, because I liked, because I enjoyed my finance classes and did well in them, uh, I uh, applied for a PhD and, and ultimately got a PhD from the University of Texas in finance. I spent another five years uh, getting a PhD and writing a dissertation and going all through the advanced classes in finance. Uh, at the same time, got to do some consulting around finance and working with professors and doing stuff. And, and the field really appealed to me in the sense of, again, it's, it's, it's both its mathematical orientation on the one hand, but also its real-world application. It, it described real phenomena. If the math didn't work, then you immediately knew. It's not like macroeconomics where you have theories and Krugman can always tell you, oh, but we haven't tried it hard enough. If only we stimulated the economy even more. Here, the, 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 the reality gave you immediate or, or very close to immediate feedback on whether what you thought made any sense or not. It also became clear to me while I was studying finance how immensely important it is to, to, the, to the system. And this is, I, I'd say this became even more real to me when I had to teach finance. Of course, you don't really know anything until you actually have to teach it. It's very, you, you really test it when you have to explain ideas to other people. Standing in front of a classroom of kids and explaining stuff, you better know what you're talking about. You can fudge, but that makes you feel really bad, or at least made me feel really bad, and then I had to go study it properly for the next time. So teaching makes you really know stuff if you do it right. And I taught to class, one of the classes I taught was uh, uh, banking, money and banking, and then uh, financial institutions. 
And I also talked about a, a, I also taught a class called uh, finance and ethics, which I'll get to. But but the institutions and the banking and all that gave me a sense of the scope of finance, not just the particulars, the, the doing this equation or that or, 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 or estimating this or estimating that, but the scope of it. And that's why I get a sense of how important finance is. It, it, you know, finance, the, the financiers, financial institutions, financial markets are really the allocators of capital in the economy. They allocate capital in the economy. They, I, I've, I've drawn the analogy, and analogies or metaphors are always very dangerous, so take this with a grain of salt. But I've drawn the, the analogy to the circulatory system in the body, uh, and it, with, with finance being kind of the heart and the and the veins and the, and the arteries, and they make sure the blood gets to where it needs to get. So the blood is the capital, and, and the whole system is the world of finance. And in that sense, it, money, capital, flows to where it's most needed, needed in the sense of it's going to be most productive. It's going to be deployed most productively, which ultimately translates into going to maximize the quality of life, the standard of living, of us, the people who live in this world, so finance is essential for that. It is the it is the the heart of of the entire economic system, which is kind of funny given how the perception of finance that it's the heart ultimately. Uh, it, so it's 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 so crucial. Capitalism doesn't exist and cannot survive without a robust, functioning, vibrant, and free financial institutions. Uh, we're going to delve into all of that as we go along. But one question I think we should get at the outset is, can you explain a little bit more what is capital? Because we often hear capital is allocated, this and that. But I think there's a lot of unclarity for people about what that means. Yeah, capital in this context, in a financial context, is primarily money and credit that is being deployed for productive uses, that is being deployed in order to build factory, pay people's salaries, uh, equipment. Now, the factory itself is capital. The equipment is capital. But, but in terms of what the financial industry does, is it deploys the money, which is, is now being used as capital because it's being used for productive purposes. In a sense, money used for productive purposes is capital. Now, capital is broader than that because capital also includes machines uh, and factories, things, things that are being used in order to produce stuff. So your home, for example, is not capital. It's a consumption good because it's not being used to produce stuff. Uh, your car is not capital. You're consuming your car. A factory is, a machine is, because it's there for the purpose of producing something else. Money in the financial system becomes capital when it's deployed for productive uh, purposes. So it's really the allocation of money in this context across the economy uh, in ways that optimize production, that optimize uh, productivity. So the whole basis for this conversation is the fact that whereas you're speaking of finance as an important industry, one of the most important industries, it's actually one of the most reviled and demonized and controlled. And so can you talk at a high level, kind of run down some of the attacks on finance, where they're coming from, uh, we'll go more into the kind of philosophic sure. basis for that later. So I think the original attacks on finance, if you go back to Aristotle and you go back to uh, 
to, to the thinkers in that period, uh, Greece and post-Greece, which who were very anti-finance. I think their objection is fundamentally an objection of not understanding its role. Uh, and Aristotle talks about money as barren. Money doesn't produce more money. So if I give you seeds, you can plant the seeds, something comes out of it, and therefore you can pay me back the equivalent of those seed and fruit in the product that was generated from the seeds themselves. Money you plant in the ground, nothing happens to it. You transfer it from person to person, it looks like nothing's going on. So, they, so, so for Aristotle and many of the thinkers, and I'd say the first uh, 1,500 years uh, A.D., it wasn't clear what was going on here. What was the productive function? And as a consequence, they thought it was a non-productive activity, and therefore people were gaining from it through interest uh, unjustly because there was, no, there was nothing they were giving in a sense. So that is one objection. Kind of, the, I think, the healthier uh, empirical uh, and scientific objection where the scientist hasn't caught up and, and they, they just don't understand it. The second objection, which, and which was often merged with this, comes from, the, from Christianity. And this objection says, look, you should help other people with no expectation of return. So it's the altruistic objection. Why are you expecting to get paid interest on the loan that you gave me? Hey, you should be helping me out because I need the loan. I need the money. You should be pretty happy that I give it back to you. Even the principal, right? Because you should, from a moral perspective, from a philosophical, religious perspective, you should just be helping, period, right? There's even a passage, I think, in the New Testament. You know, you, you give without an expectation of getting anything in return. So if you combine those, for the first about 1,500 years in Western history, there was the idea that money is barren and it's immoral, to expect anything back, because that would be self-interested. That would be that would be pursuing your self-interest at the expense of the other person. At some point, we got the economic understanding that it's not at somebody else's expense. I'll give you just an anecdote that makes this funny. The Christians so much believed that lending money uh, to somebody else was hurting them was 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 a, was a was somehow bad that. Um, that they encouraged lending money to their enemies because they thought it would, they didn't see the productive purpose. They didn't see how it could enhance. So they were lending to the Muslims during the wars against them because they think they thought that by charging them interest, they are hurting them. If you see the productive function of money, you know you say, no, wait a minute, lending money to somebody who can then invest that money to buy the seeds to plant the things to to do all that actually enhances the, the borrowers, so uh, you would never do that. So they combine this idea of its unproductivity with its immorality. At some point, sometime in the 16th century, suddenly by the 19th century, there was a good understanding of the productive role of money, why money was productive, why it enhanced uh, the person you were, you were lending it to, why charging an interest made sense. And there was also, of course, by that point, a deeper understanding of banking, a deeper understanding of the various functions of finance. You've got, you know, in the 19th century, you've got the beginnings of stock markets and other forms of financial activity. You even have the first derivatives pretty early on in, 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 the, in the 17th and 18th century. So people understand, at that point, the economic value. 
the problem is that the the moral values never the moral values never uh, been articulated. So we still look at finance as a culture from the altruistic perspective. Well, well, well how can they make so much money? You know, they're just the greedy Wall Street. They're just out for it for themselves. So we have, while we understand the productive function, it's colored by this notion of it's immoral. And as a consequence, in spite of many people understanding the productive function, it's still viewed as they just paper shufflers. They're just moving stuff around. Uh, so there's still a deep misunderstanding of that productive function among most people, even though the economists have figured it out. Certainly the economists know it. The business people know it. But it hasn't, it hasn't really been integrated into the culture. The culture, because of the moral issue, still views the productive nature of finance as negative. If, zero, if not negative. So uh, that's why we talk about paper shufflers on Wall Street. And they serve no productive function. And, and they're just all... They're just all taking our money and, and uh, the emphasis is on uh, distribution uh, from a fixed pie rather than allocation. Distribution and allocation, I think, are very different. And so then that makes it really plausible when our intellectual leaders, instead of explaining how finance works, point to them as the source of any problem in the economy. Well, yeah, what so do you I, expect from bad guys? Yeah, so our intellectual leaders constantly point to the financial markets and the financiers and financial activity as the cause of all the ill in the world, whether the ill right now inequality or whether the ill is a financial crisis or economic crisis. Really, every economic crisis over the last 2,000 years has been blamed on bankers, financiers. It's never been blamed on the, on the source of it, which is, which is politics and, and politicians and the regulations and, and the central bankers and so on. But So it's always been financiers. And, and if and we really look at this, it really in America, this is really from the beginning, from the founding of this country, we see this. And we see that a, a real distrust of banking, a real distrust of finance by many, even of the founding fathers, who, of course, I have a huge amount of respect for. But again, they, they're the same way. They're tainted by this. On the one hand, not understanding its full productive value at the end of the 18th century. It was still relatively new, the, the economics of it. But also from the, from the morality of it. And a third element was financiers were viewed in some ways as all-powerful because they controlled money and money had this mystical sense about it so that if, if, if a banker became too big, it was viewed as he's too powerful. And, if, and, and there's a confusion between political power and economic power. Uh, it, so even though all the power the banker had was the power, the voluntary power, which is economic power, it was perceived as a governmental power. And again, part of that is because banking and government have been hand in hand from the almost from the beginning, because the state immediately figured out they're controlling money, controlling banking, controlling finance, enhanced their power to control people. So they intervened. So it was kings who coined money, even though the original money was private. It was, it was state banks that became the first big bank. So at the beginning of the founding of the country, we really, uh, the founders were very suspicious of moneyed interests in big banks. So they created a financial system through regulations. Really, the first regulations in America and the most persistent regulations are regulations of financial markets that have created, particularly in the United States, a very unstable financial system. 
But we never blame the instability on those regulations. We always find a way to blame the instability on the banker. Um, the banker's self-interest, profit motive, is naked because he's dealing with money. He's trying to make money for money. When Bill Gates or Steve Jobs are trying to make money, they're offering us a product. So we get what we get in return for the money we give up. So we're a lot more sympathetic to the Steve Jobses and the Bill Gates. Not very, but more sympathetic to them making gazillions of dollars than we are to bankers who can't hide behind a product. We don't see what we get out of it. What we get out of their existence and their flourishing is a much high standard of living, but in kind of that's implicit, that's complicated, and it's hard for us to see the direct benefit. So we're much less forgiving of the wealth that bankers and financiers make than we are from, from uh, other types of businessmen. So I want to delve a little bit more into the positive, which is the role that um, financial markets and financial, the financial industry play in the economy and in our standard of living. And feel free to elaborate on what you said generally, but I also want to talk about some cases that are very controversial, uh, hedge funds, high-frequency trading, derivatives. So wherever you want to start. Yeah, so that. before we get to the, the very controversial parts like hedge funds and, and high-frequency trading and things like that, I think it's important to establish the markets in which they function are productive. So, for example, most hedge funds trade in the stock market. Most high-frequency trading is about the st stock market. Why is the stock market important? Because I think the stock markets are crucially important. And, indeed, you will not find a, a truly developed, sustainable economy out there without a stock market. And, and the healthier the stock market, in a sense of well-functioning, uh, liquid where people can buy and sell regularly and they can depend on prices reflecting underlying, uh, 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 underlying uh, principles about the businesses that, that, are being, that, that the stocks represent, you won't find a thriving economy without that being successful. Stock markets are really responsible for allocating capital on a national basis, on an economy-wide basis, and today on an international basis. So stock markets, in a sense, decide which which Categories of business are going to thrive and which are going to fail. Uh, I like to give the example, which you could do, you could do a gazillion different examples of, of, you know, when buggies, if you were buggy manufacturers and you were making the best buggy in the world, you probably didn't notice that there was an automobile industry until your stock price started going down. Because when the stock prices went down, you went, what's going on? Why, why are people selling off? I'm, I make the best buggies in the world. And then you probably looked around and you saw the automobile industry and that hopefully made you completely retool your business and, and, and get into something else. The stock market sees the automobile industry rising and the buggy industry declining way before anybody else does. Participants in that market, they buy and sell. They buy the automobile industry, they sell the buggy industry. But more than that, within an industry, they decide the fates of different companies based on really, really smart people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is. So this is not just people who are writing academic papers or people writing articles in the newspaper about, oh, Apple's, Apple's uh, watch sucks, Apple's stock is going to decline. No, these are people who are actually willing to put their dollars behind it. So, uh, you know, you might see a lot of articles, negative articles about a company in the newspaper, but the stock price goes up because the people who count, the people who actually 
are willing to invest in that company and say, no, we disagree with the newspaper, and this is, this is really what matters. Uh, so stock markets are crucial in that sense, and it's crucial that stock markets have good information and that people who have better information and who are better at getting the information or analyzing it and figuring out which companies are good companies, which are bad, which industries are good, which are bad, it's important that they profit from that so that they invest more because then the stock price is more meaningful. It includes their information. So if I see a stock at $20 a share, and I'm, I'm really good at this, and I estimate that the stock is worth $26 a share, I start buying. And as I start buying, the stock price will go up. And soon, the, in, the knowledge that I have that the stock is really worth 26 is going to be embedded in the stock price. Now, if other people think it's worth less, they'll be selling, and maybe the price will go down. But the more people... You know, so, but it's, it's, it's my willingness to take on risk to push it up, which is ultimately going to ref be reflected in the price. So it's really important that stock prices have good information because, and, and this will be my last point on, on the stock market, because other, everybody else looks at stock prices. Managers look at stock prices and tell them, are we doing well or are we not? And, and managers, if they're smart, We'll use the stock price. We'll use the market evaluation of them to know when they should maybe rethink their business model or rethink what they're doing if things are not going well or, re or double up on what they are doing if things are going well. Uh, or in the buggy example, evaluate whether they should be in a completely different industry. Um, it's also important for bondholders and banks because they look at this company and they, they see the stock price collapsing. They're not going to lend them money. So a lot of players in the economy, employees, future employees, are looking, is this a thriving business? Is it a good business? So it's important that the stock market actually reflect the reality of what's going on in the world. And for that, it needs to be liquid. There needs to be trading. And that the smartest guys in the room, the people who bring the most to the table, can profit from. So to sum that up, basically it's, stocks generally are going to allow companies to raise enormous amounts of capital to go out and create all the things that we buy and that our standard of living depends on. A stock market is going to facilitate that and make sure that the information in terms of how much is this company worth is good that enables us to make all sorts of decisions about yes. how to coordinate an economy. Yes, as you said, the, 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 the fundamental productive function of an economy is of a stock market is to, is to be able to raise the capital. But then it's once the trading happens, and that people get, right? They get that what they don't get is why is all this trading going on and why is that productive? So that's the end of part one of this interview. But stay tuned because next week we'll be back with part two of three. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 